This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. You don't realize that by, you know, skimping uh, on the installation or skimping on the hardware, uh, buying from a more reputable or more secure manufacturer, that could save their business. Uh, these systems are not just, you know, IP addresses on the network. They control things that people hear and see. Uh, it could have tremendous damage to someone's brand uh, or a business's brand. It could hurt someone. Uh, could result in someone getting hurt or killed. So uh, these are really important systems, and I hope people kind of consider that stuff when they're setting them up and deploying them. Really what we're trying to do is get a foothold somewhere onto that system so these AV-type equipment might be just an entry path into the broader network or into the broader, broader system itself. I would say in the majority of our actual assessments, there's either some misconfiguration or a weak configuration or default configuration of the device that we take advantage of. And that's almost always the case. Uh, right now, it's, it's just too easy. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. My name is Patrick Murray. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. And today we're having a special episode about cybersecurity. It's been just about 20 years since RJ45 connectors have started showing up on AV equipment and more and more internet is playing a role in the systems that, that we install. Now we used to have the luxury of isolating our systems from the internet and saying it's not our problem things will just work fine. That's becoming a more and more difficult argument to, uh, to have with our end users. So first up on the show today is Dr. Jonathan Butts. He's a retired Air Force officer who, among many other roles, served as research director at the Air Force Center for Cyberspace Research. Also on the show is Billy Rios. He's held security positions with companies like Ernst & Young, VeriSign, and Microsoft. And he probably had one of the coolest sounding job titles as Google's security ninja. Both Jonathan and Billy are currently managing partners at QED Secure Solutions, whose mission it is to advance cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, thanks for having me. Matt. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? I think you did a, a pretty good job. Appreciate it. it made it sound good anyway, so that, that we appreciate. That's your LinkedIn profile at work. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, let's, let's go but one by one. Jonathan, tell us, how did you get started in security and uh, what keeps you working in this space? Well, interestingly enough, it actually started when I was in sixth grade is, is kind of where it all first started for me. I was... Uh, uh, notoriously got kicked out of my computer lab in sixth grade from me and a, a longtime childhood friend were poking around on the system that was just installed and figured out how to become the system admins and lock everybody in the school out of the computer systems. Uh, my mother at the time worked for IBM, which had the contract for installing the system, so she got in trouble as well with it. Uh, but we got kicked out of the uh, the computer lab for the for the year. And uh, kind of from there, it just became a really big interest of toying around. And I find it interesting to see how, uh, not only how things work, but how to break the things that work. And I think that's what, what is just kind of part of the notion of who you are, is that 
do enjoying those kind of things. Um, fast forward into my Air Force career, um, I got involved with, uh, I started out doing aircraft maintenance, so I was working on aircraft systems, um, and then became involved with the cybersecurity um, and cyber operations later in my career, and uh, just couldn't quite get away from it, just really enjoyed doing it, and um, one of the things that Billy and I focus on is we like the complex systems. So you have your traditional information technology computer systems, which uh, we enjoy looking at, but we really like looking at the complex systems. And so a lot of that includes the IoT environment, uh, the AV environment. We also work on um, avionics systems, transportation systems. We've done voting machines, medical devices. So really we, we enjoy, um, and what I enjoy is the challenge of these uh, very, very complex systems. Um, and it's, uh, I think more than anything, it's just interesting and challenging and, and fun to do. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that, that mental challenge. Um, and when you were talking about that, I had a flash flashback to what's that movie? Um, war games. You didn't change war your games. Yeah, <laughs> no, not, not that they can prove. Nice. And what about yourself, Billy? Yeah. I, I think I got my start in somewhere, you know, similar to Jonathan there. So, um, as a kid, I actually started. Uh, my parents had bought me a computer when I was really young, and um, I actually started by hacking games. So, you know, trying to change the high score to something that you could never achieve or, uh, you know, get equipment that you weren't supposed to have. So, um, you know, did this as a, as a young kid, and all my friends are doing this as well. So it just kind of seemed like a normal thing to do, uh, you know, in your free time. So, and uh, little, you know, little do you realize that, you know, hacking video games kind of teaches you the fundamentals of, how software actually works and, and how programs actually run on computers, right? So how to find vulnerabilities in them. So and that those lessons kind of followed me through, you know, places like Microsoft and Google where I just worked essentially full time with them, uh, looking for bugs in their software. But um, I think at the end of the day, what really kind of you know gets me up in the morning is is looking at some of these complex systems. And now since everything's connected, you know, things that can actually have some kind of are really you know, interesting to us, like medical devices, airplanes, uh, locomotives, cars, things like that. So uh, it's been a, a pretty fun journey. Absolutely. Um, the theme I'm starting to see here is uh, it has a lot to do with breaking the rules, is, is how you could kind of get started with these systems, um, just looking for <laughs> ways to get around, you know, what the, the laid out path is, how systems are supposed to be used, and looking at it and saying, well, maybe there's another way to achieve another goal that wasn't foreseen. And like Billy pointed out, things are becoming more and more complicated, more and more interconnected. So there's probably even more opportunity to break the rules. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to emphasize too, breaking the rules versus breaking the law. <laughs> and so um, you're, you're absolutely right on, on the system or component level perspective. Um, there's, there's certain things we try to do as researchers or cybersecurity researchers, and sometimes it's using intended functionality of a system in a way that it was not intended to be used. Um, or the other way is looking for gaps in design. And if just maybe it wasn't designed correctly. And so finding those gaps, um, exactly as you're pointing out, Pat, is, you know, how do we um, take these systems and break the rules, if you will, on for what it's intended to do? Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, um, you know, breaking the rules versus breaking the law. Like um, most of the systems, you know, uh, that you can look at, especially most of the software, um, there's nothing stopping you from, you know, getting that software yourself. So, 
like a video game, for example, you know, we were kids and we owned the video games that we were hacking, right? So we were doing it from the comfort of our own home. Um, and we were trying to figure out how the video game works so we could change our own high scores. But uh, in, in, throughout that process, we we're learning exactly how these games worked and how the programs worked. And I think, you know, the same thing applies kind of to the, to the AV industry as well, right? So if someone wants to take a look at some of the software or hardware that's being used to project onto a giant, you know, uh, LCD screen inside of a stadium or, uh, you know, onto the wall of some uh, giant, you know, uh, facility, um, there's really nothing stopping for someone to, you know, there's really nothing stopping someone from buying that software or buying that hardware and then just kind of tearing it apart in their own home and, and trying to find vulnerabilities and things like that. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, security can be obviously a very complicated topic. Could you maybe break it down for us? Um, I'm sure that you both have plenty of stories, but if you could think of just a very straightforward example of how a vulnerability was discovered and perhaps exploited or could have been exploited, and of course, what could have been done to prevent it. Yeah. Billy, you want to start with uh, Sochi? That's a pretty good... Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I think you're absolutely right. Like, there is a spectrum of effort that's required to exploit some of these vulnerabilities, right? So, but um, but man, you know, many years ago during you know the Winter Games in Sochi, um, we actually have a database of uh, every single building that's on the internet. And so, um, a couple weeks before the actual opening ceremony, we noticed that uh, there's some buildings in Russia that popped up into our database, and we took a look, and and lo and behold, it was Sochi Arena, right? So. Um, and so, you know, we wanted to check it out, just kind of see what it was. And um, at the end of the day, what we ended up finding is that someone had inadvertently put all those buildings online uh, and basically made them accessible without any passwords, right? And so literally anyone that guessed the correct IP address of these buildings uh, would be authenticated to these buildings, essentially, could, could actually uh, take over some of the f facility automation systems that are in there, which included like energy management and some of the other things. So. Um, that's like a really simple example of you know, how you have to be careful. And if you're not, you could inadvertently expose yourself to something that you probably don't want. And that exposure, how could it have been prevented? Was it really just uh, a human error? Yeah, I know. I think it, I think, you know, looking back on, on it, hindsight's always twenty twenty, So it's of kind course. of easy for us to say, Hey, look, you know, they should have just never did this. But, um, you know, if you think about kind of what was happening at the time, you know, with the, with those winter games, you know, everyone was in a big rush. They were, they were rushing to kind of complete a bunch of projects for the opening ceremony. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're talking about a remote area in Russia, so it's kind of hard to get equipment up there and contractors and, and things like that. So if you look at the situation, you know, as a whole, um, it's easy to see how, how something like this could have easily been missed. But, um, you know, if you take it for what it is, it's kind of easy to say, hey, uh, I can't believe someone would, were to, would, would be able to do this or would do this or forget to, you know, protect the system with a password or something like that. So, uh, but, but it, it, you know, I think these, uh, you know, seemingly easy solutions, sometimes it can be pretty complicated in, in the implementation. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, I see this uh, all the time. Process takes time. It takes time. It takes resources. And the yeah. only way, like you're saying, to make sure the right person does the right thing at the right time is to have a process in place. And uh, especially with an alive event like that, um, time is one thing that is not on your side and process is usually the first thing that falls by the wayside. Yeah. And I think also there's, 
there's another aspect of that is there, it's really there's three layers to this too in most typical installations that at least from our perspective we look at. Uh, one is the vendor itself, so you have the vendor of the type of equipment. So is the equipment securely developed or secure, securely implemented? Are there vulnerabilities in the software um, or in the configuration stack? So that's one of the process uh, aspects is the vendor. The integrator who actually installs the device um, is another one, and that's the ones a lot of times where we see the majority of the gaps because they're the ones that are accidentally or intentionally, not maliciously, um, exposing those systems to the internet. A lot of time it's done for convenience or for remote management, remote control. So there's typically, there's a lot of times there's a reason behind it, uh, but the integrator is the, the second piece. And then the third piece is the owner operator. And uh, a lot of times that's a facility owner. And uh, many times they don't even realize that they're exposed because the integrator will come in a lot of times under a contract to execute and get the system up and running. Um, and they get that working, and then the end operator doesn't even realize that there's the remote management control going on and don't even realize that they're actually exposed uh, to potential cyber-based attacks. Absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, quite recently, one of the largest manufacturers in AV, Crestron, was perhaps a bit unfairly pointed out that um, – their stuff is delivered, their devices are delivered unauthenticated, right? So if, if you are on the same network you and you have their software, you could just log in and no problem. And um, quite frankly, most manufacturers in AV operate the same way. And a new firmware has come out so that when the first time you log in, or actually every time you log in, if you haven't um, activated authentication, then you'll get a little message that says, hey, you're unauthenticated. Now, taking this a step back, I like to compare this to something consumer that everybody's familiar with. So when you buy a router, a lot of times for your home, on the back of it, there'll be a login and a unique um, SSID and a unique password. So there's like this spectrum of, just like Jonathan was pointing out, whose responsibility is it? And the, the, the manufacturer that actually sets up each device with a unique password and authentication enabled I'm guessing is the most they could do in that respect. And from an installation point of view, I'm, I'm involved with that quite a bit personally. And I know that I'm motivated to get in and out of that project as fast as possible. So if it's not in the specification for the project to enable authentication and do certain things to heighten security, well, if something goes out to bid, the person who did the lowest bid is going to get that project. So that's another aspect of why um, the motivation isn't there for the installer. And the owners, quite frankly, very often don't know about it. So what, what are your thoughts on where the responsibility falls and perhaps what the minimum requirements could or should be and what could motivate all the players to, to do their part? Yeah, I, this is, I think this is, that's a really good question, right? So um, you know, we're dealing with an industry that's pretty complicated in that there's a lot of parties involved in the actual deployment. And, uh, and we've seen other industries like this, like, for example, healthcare is the same, where you have a, you know, a hospital or a doctor that's trying to deliver patient care, and then you have a manufacturer that makes the medical device, and you have a, essentially an integrator that helps deploy it in the hospital. Um, it sounds like AV is the same, right? So you have a manufacturer, you have a end user, which could be a sporting facility, it could be a huge event arena or something like that. And then you have an integrator who's kind of installing these things. And exactly. I think it's important to understand that like um, at the end of the day, the person that's attacking your systems for real, they probably don't care whose fault it is, right? They just, all they care about is that, you know, the software is crappy or 
that there is no authentication or that someone you know inadvertently set the password to something that's easily guessed and uh, all they really care about is at the end of the day they can you know put their image on the big screen or uh, take over some kind of auto audio system and put their message on the audio right so um, and so what that really means is that uh, the folks that are deploying these systems actually have to work together and uh, if, if, if they're not all working together then it's really not going to work right so if you have equipment that just has really bad software engineering and has a lot of security holes at the software layer, you know, that doesn't help the integrator, that doesn't help the end user. Um, if you have really secure software security engineering, but the integrator deploys it in an insecure way, that really doesn't help the manufacturer of the end user. And then at the end of the day, if the end user, you know, is asking for things that are unreasonable, uh, that the manufacturer and integrator just cannot deliver from a security standpoint, uh, that really doesn't help anyone either, right? So it's really a it's really a team game, I think, on the defense side. Uh, it has to be boy, otherwise, uh, you know, one small mistake can can result in a facility getting compromised or a system getting compromised. Absolutely, and I think some of these things are obvious. Like if a system is unauthenticated, anybody could log in. That's something that's really obvious. A little more difficult to determine is perhaps you mentioned the quality of the software. Is do you have any thoughts on how to actually determine that? Yeah, I think there's a couple different there's a couple different ways. Um, I, I think um, that's probably the old, that's more suited for like a security researcher. Um, you, you mentioned Crestron. I, I think I, I know what you're talking about. There's a conference every year that uh, gets presented in, in Las Vegas. A couple of conferences. One's called Black Hat. The other one's called DEFCON. And um, that's really a place where security researchers will take their research from the previous year or two and present it, right? So, and those are usually kind of focused at you know, software security engineering issues. And so um, that, that's one way. But if you're not interested in having your equipment or software presented publicly in front of you know, thousands of people and security holes revealed uh, publicly, um, there's a lot of things that you can do. You can do testing. Um, you know, there's a variety, of a variety of types of testing that you can do. Um, you know, I worked at Microsoft, I worked at Google. Um, we had a lot of different, you know, things that we did, a lot of different processes that we did to ensure that our engineering quality was high, right, from the security standpoint. So uh, it's definitely manageable. It's definitely something that manufacturers can do. And if you're not a manufacturer, there's definitely things you can do to, to test the security quality of the software that you're buying. Excellent. And um, perhaps tell us a bit about your company. Is is that what one of the services that you offer? It is, yeah. So we... Um, we work with clients and um, we do various types of uh, assessments or quality assurance. Uh, we have both government, uh, we work with U.S. government, we also work with uh, private industry. Uh, and they'll bring us in a lot of times uh, to actually, if it's device level, to say, hey, we've got a new product going out. Um, we want you to take a look at this from an attacker's perspective, if you will. Um, and so we'll do an assessment on the device and identify some uh, potential weaknesses or things that can be enhanced to help improve security. Uh, so we work with vendors from that perspective. The end users as well, we will come in and this, this is one of those components I think that's missing just in industry in general, um, but we'll come in and look at the complete system of systems as, as it is deployed and find those weak points in there. Um, I think we actually enjoy both aspects of that. Um, we've had some pretty fun engagements. We've worked with some uh, professional sporting agencies to where we've gone in um, and done an assessment with some of their uh, facilities, arenas, stadium type uh, venues. Um, and on that one, we were looking specifically for building automation that ties in kind of to the points here is uh, looking at some of the AV systems and what we could do to actually uh, 
either change the outcome of the game or the flow of the game or also potentially inject messages on the, the jumbotron or the audiovisual equipment as well. Um, so those are kind of some of the things we work with. Uh, we don't necessarily talk specifically about the clients that we support. Uh, from the government standpoint, the uh, things that are in the public, uh, we, we are working on a program with the Department of Homeland Security uh, on a program to evaluate the security posture of a, a commercial aviation, commercial aircraft, so we are working with them on that. Um, you know, but Billy, any other thoughts on? Yeah, I think, um, you know, some of the most more fun engagements that we've been on have been for some of the end users. And um, that's, you know, when the whole system's put into play or, um, you know, the whole, uh, you know, facility is put into play. And that's when you can see some really interesting things, right? Like, you know, for example, some of these AV systems are a component of public safety, right? So if you can, you know, get your message or inject your message into a huge jumbotron and, um, you know, put a message up there that shouldn't be there or take over an audiovisual system and broadcast a message on the, on the audio side, um, you know, that could, that could have some public safety implications, right? And I think, you know, when, when we've demonstrated things like that, I think everyone that's involved, manufacturers, integrators, and the end users, uh, they all understand that pretty well, right? So um, these systems are actually really important. They're not just, you know, casting uh, colors onto the wall or video onto the wall. They're they're an integral part of these events, and so if they if they become hacked or compromised, it could have a pretty big impact, not just on the event, uh, but for the folks that are attending the event as well. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, could be an opportunity for somebody to scream fire in a crowded movie theater in a, a very different way. Um, yeah. So, uh, very interesting the stuff you're talking about. But can we dial it back just a bit? And on a smaller scale, so think of maybe a, a smaller university or a business that has maybe 10 conference rooms with video conferencing and something like that. Most of the devices in our space, video projectors, the uh, signal distribution equipment, um, the power amplifiers, the audio equipment, they, they can talk to each other over the network, but very few of them um, are encrypted when even authenticated. So it, Telnet is still very popular. It's serial over IP. So it is, I think, pretty clearly not secure. But customers want that internet connection more and more. They want to use services that uh, could need the cloud, like O365 or something like Zoom for video conferencing. So what would you recommend? How would you recommend that we kind of handle that situation where we have these unsecured devices that require a connection to the internet? Yeah, I think it's important to understand, you know, how the device is connecting. So, for example, like, you know, if we're talking about a school or just kind of a normal corporate office, um, you know, something as simple as like a conference room scheduling device, you know, like that you see on the wall that tells you who's got the conference room for the next hour and things like that. Um, you know, it, it's important to just kind of, you know, take a step back and ask yourself, how is this device getting that information, right? And so, um, in, you know, in order to have the schedule for a conference room, it's probably got to read a calendar of some kind, right? So and that means in most corporate environments, it's probably connecting to an exchange server, right? Um, and if it's connecting to an exchange server, that means it probably has a username and password that it's using to do that, right? And so, and I, you know, I'm not just making a scenario up. We've looked at some of these systems and that's exactly how they work, right? They get provisioned to, username and password and it periodically queries an exchange server for information about the scheduling, right? So, um, and so, you know, that's 
it, it's not that, you know, hey, this device is you know, talking to other devices or connected to the internet. It's, hey, you know, how is it actually doing this? And if this thing is compromised, what does that actually mean for my business or my company or my school? Um, you know, if someone were to compromise the conferencing scheduler and get that username and password that's on there, what does that mean, right? And so uh, that, that's where you start to kind of understand what the real risks uh, that are involved with these things and the connectivity that's associated with them. Yeah, and I think <clears throat> to piggyback on that, I think that's a great point because when we go in and we look at assessments or we do evaluations, really what we're trying to do is get a foothold somewhere, right? And so um, you've seen it through other um, venues before, I, I guess, but really what we're trying to do is get a foothold somewhere onto that system. So these AV type equipment might be just an entry path into the broader network or into the broader, broader system itself. So as Billy mentioned, hey, maybe it's, it's grabbing information over the internet. Maybe it is connected to the internet, so that's a pathway in. Once we have that, can we pivot from that system into another system, critical system? And when we say pivot, as Billy mentioned, if it's logging in to another system, well, if we own that box and we can take those credentials, then we can log into that system. So now we've just pivoted to a different part of the network. Um, and so really what I think, you know, what you can do from a protective standpoint or defensive posture is just to really look at those critical systems. First, identify those within your uh, corporate environment and say, what are my critical systems? And then what devices are have access to those? And is that risk, do I accept that risk that if that end device ever were compromised, uh, can I follow a chain to where I can get to those, uh, the crown jewels, if you will. Uh, but I think that's probably missing a lot in the corporate world from what we see is um, the hierarchy of the networks are very flat so that if you get access to one system, you can kind of just laterally move throughout the network. Um, so looking at controls to actually segment off critical pieces um, and identifying those assets as well. Would something like VLANs help with that? Absolutely. I think VLANs uh, would definitely uh, is a practical uh, implementation that where you can segment off the systems uh, to minimize impact is really what you're trying to do is if a system gets compromised, can I minimize the impact of that compromise? And going back to the room scheduling panel, um, would something like OAuth 2 be an acceptable way to say, all right, this is as secure as it can be? Yeah, I, I think so, right? So I think, you know, you're bringing up a, you're bringing up a really good point here. So, um, you know, the, you had mentioned earlier that, you know, some of these systems are just kind of taking, you know, advantage of the connectivity there, but really the underlying technologies, the serial and the proprietary protocols that they're using to broadcast and receive uh, audio and visual, uh, is, is, that hasn't changed, right? And so, right. and those old protocols are actually pretty insecure, to be honest. They were never built with security in mind. They're really uh, built with reliability and kind of quality of service in mind. And so, um, you know, we can't expect those protocols to change anytime soon. And so really what we're looking is like, how do we mitigate the risks that are introduced by those types of things? And so uh, it does really come down to essentially third party solutions, right? Like VLANs, uh, like uh, enabling certain features and usually enabling some of these features requires a little more effort from a configuration and installation side. Uh, but most of the time it's worth it, right? So uh, leaving a device in its default configuration, usually a bad thing. So uh, usually there's gonna be some effort required to the devices. Great. Thank, thanks for clearing that up. That that really is exactly what's going on. And um, I'm asking for personal reasons. I'm curious because, like I said, we have these devices that 
probably will not in the foreseeable future be a, a be able to activate authentication or encryption and they're good at what they do right it's a great video projector but it you know anybody with its ip address could turn it on and off or maybe some kind of a screen sharing solution or digital signage player it, it does its job really well but the security aspect is the problem and on the flip side of that the cloud uh, consumer devices, things like Alexa voice control. Everybody knows about them. They're familiar with them and they're expecting them in their new systems. And um, we have to kind of ride these two chariots at the same time and uh, provide, you know, that kind of connectivity. So that's kind of why I'm asking about that. And um, I, I think this plays a lot into IOT, like how, what is a, a the IoT approach and how do we cordon off things that shouldn't be accessible? Yeah, it, it, it's tricky, right? So, I mean, you know, no one wants to pay more than they have to. And I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, like, you know, a lot of these installations are done at the lowest bidder, right? done with the lowest bidder. And so, um, and some of these uh, owners and operators of facilities and schools and uh, corporate buildings and things like that, they, they don't realize that by, you know, skimping, uh, on the installation or skimping on the hardware, uh, buying from a more reputable or more secure manufacturer, that could save their business, right? So, uh, I mean, imagine if you were if you were the integrator or manufacturer and uh, for an Olympic Games and your systems got hacked, right, and it became a huge public spectacle or caused a public safety issue and someone got hurt or killed, right? Like uh, looking back at you know your decision to skimp and go with the lowest bidder probably wouldn't make a lot of sense at that point, right? So um, it's, I think there's a lot of responsibility to go around and these groups that are involved in deploying these systems, they have to have a little bit of foresight to understand, hey, look, uh, it's worth going the extra mile or it's worth paying for the extra configuration options or it's worth going with the more secure uh, hardware uh, because you know, at the end of the day, uh, these systems are not just you know, IP addresses on the network. They control things that people hear and see uh, it could have tremendous damage to someone's brand uh, or a business's brand. It could hurt someone, uh, could result in someone getting hurt or killed. So uh, these are really important systems, and I hope people kind of consider that stuff when they're setting them up and deploying them. I don't think it's negligence intentionally on part of the asset owners. Um, I think it's just ignorance or lack of awareness. And so, you know, from this standpoint, we saw this, you know, we've seen this over the years through the industrial control system environment, your more bigger oil and gas, electric power grid, things of those nature, really was kind of in the same spot about 10, 12 years ago to where there's no requirements for security. There was, you know, lowest bidder type thing from a standpoint of we're not even putting security requirements into the um, uh, RFPs or anything from that standpoint. Uh, but as the threat became more realized and more publicly consumed, uh, you're starting to see that now and the requirements come in, the vendors are getting on board. Um, the AV community and Billy and I work a lot, in the, again, in the building automation space, which you know encompasses the, a lot of the AV equipment, um, it's just not there yet. And so you gotta start asking, what is it gonna take? And there's, there's, there's different aspects, there's the you know, potential harm to personal safety that could be tied to it. There's the quote unquote terrorist type threats that we talked about earlier. Um, there's leverage of using that to get into other aspects of your system. Um, there's these devices are so insecure. A lot of times people are just stealing the cycles off of it without the end user even knowing it. Um, you know, I, I like to compare it to 
you know, 20 years ago, uh, when a hacker you know, compromised your, your home computer, your system would just shut down and everything would stop. And that was kind of the end game until people realize that there's a monetary aspect there to where, right. hey, if I have your system and I own it, I can actually use your cycles uh, for things. And you see that with, you know, mining for Bitcoin and things of that nature. So we were starting to see these IoT devices being compromised from that aspect, too, because people just want computing cycles. So I think it's taking a step back and seeing, you know, what is what is the landscape from a threat standpoint? Um, and I think there's there's a long ways to go in the AV community to where we get to that, to where you actually start seeing it. Have you ever seen one in our requirements, Pat? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting to see when that first one comes down. Uh, I guess maybe if you if you do the Olympics coming up, they're going to start putting right. that stuff in there. Now, but, if, it's, uh, if, it's something, guess is, <laughs> if it's something obvious like a, a government or a military installation, then, of course, they have their requirements for what kind of networks right. are being used and how things are installed. But um, in a typical conference room, it's it, it's really difficult to get a conversation with the IT department unless you are really on their network. And then things just go extremely slow because their decision-making right. processes are completely different and they don't know what our devices are. They don't know anything about them. So there's a lot of resistance there. And that's why- And, and they don't understand the risk exactly. that's being introduced either. Yeah. yeah, and that's why we tend to cordon things off and make our own little networks that don't have a connection to anything. And, uh, and, and that way we know that we're safe and we're still taking advantage of that um, network connectivity. But other times it's impossible. If we have to control the lightings and lighting and shades and, and climate control, then we are tied into other systems. So it's becoming more and more difficult to, uh, to cordon off those, um, these different solutions. Well, I'm, I'm listening to all of this and hearing that there's a similar situation in other industries that has changed over the years. And I'm wondering if at some point there'll just be an umbrella term um, for anything that's connected to the internet, any kind of system or device. And I'm guessing that's going to be IoT. So do you see any kind of standards, perhaps IoT standards or guidelines or best practices that, um, that we could fall back on and, and start taking action on? I think, I think you're going to see it more prevalently. Um, uh, I'm not a big proponent of government regulation on a lot of things, but I think in this standpoint, because of the public safety, yeah. uh, there needs to be more done on this aspect. Um, I, I think we're going to start seeing it. You're seeing organizations kind of starting to pop up on this uh, with the IoT um, kind of push behind it and everything is so interconnected uh, from that standpoint. So I think we will see that grow. Um, whether or not each industry itself focuses more. And I think that's probably you get more done from industry perspective um, uh, than from a broad aspect, but it's mm -hmm. tough for these consumer devices because they're so, I mean, everything you buy now is a, has a consumer IOT device and how are you going to encompass all of that? And you start connecting fridges and washer and dryers and all that together right. and then your AV system. And, you know, how, how do you manage that? Um, and I think one of the things we like to focus on is, uh, especially on the building automation system, is we look very closely at the com device configuration, at the configuration level as a starting point. I would say in the majority of our actual assessments, there's either some misconfiguration or a weak configuration or default configuration of the device that we take advantage of. And that's almost always the case. At some point, on a deployment in a building automation or AV type system, we will find a weak configuration in a device. And 
so what we like to focus on is, hey, let's start first and making sure these devices are securely configured before we deploy them. And then from that standpoint, you can start layering up of, okay, how's my network connectivity? Am I, you know, um, touching the right, am I going somewhere I shouldn't be or am I exposing over the internet and maybe I don't have that desire? Uh, but really, if we're looking for a foundational principle to your listeners out there and to folks in the community, I would say we start at the device level configuration standpoint. How do we evaluate that to make sure we're in compliance uh, to a degree with um, some sort of security standards? Interesting. So you mentioned in the beginning IoT and, and managing and management and, and device configuration, right? Now, all of those things, there are lots of companies out there who are offering an IoT platform. Microsoft has one. Amazon has one. I've been looking a lot at Ubuntu Core lately um, to, to manage IoT devices. And that is the first step in management is configuring the device in a secure way. Do you have any thoughts on these um, ready-to-go IoT platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> yeah, I think generally it's a you know it's probably a good thing, right? So, uh, but uh, also realize that these these deployments are really complicated, right? And so you can't just uh, farm farm the risk off to someone else, right? So if you're if you're a stadium and uh, your device gets hacked and someone broadcasts a message over your AV system. That, that's, that's an issue you have to deal with. It doesn't matter what infrastructure you're using. It doesn't matter if you're using Microsoft or Google or Amazon or Homegrown. Uh, you're going to have to deal with the repercussions you know, for that. So, um, and so I, you know, generally speaking, I think it's a good thing, but I think uh, the important thing is to understand that that doesn't shift risk away from, from you, right? That's not an easy way to just shift risk to someone else. Uh, if something happens to these systems, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that are held accountable for it. And just because you're running on you know, Microsoft's cloud doesn't mean that you know, they're at fault, right? So I think a lot of people will probably be pointing their finger at the uh, end users, right? Or only the manufacturers. Yeah. Um, in the end, there really is no 100% security. And one of the guidelines that I've heard is, is just to have a security officer do security reviews and, and publish that review to, to your customers and, and let them know what the risks are and kind of try to, uh, yeah, <laughs> at least let everybody yeah. know that you know where you're exposed. Yeah, and I, I think you had, you had mentioned this earlier, um, you know, with the AV systems, you said that it's a process, right? And security is the same thing. It's a process. And so um, there is no magical device that you're going to buy uh, that's going to protect your network. There's no magical service uh, that you can subscribe to that's going to solve all your problems, right? So it's a process that has to be managed and it has to be managed continuously, right? So uh, that, that's the approach that folks have to take, even, even in IoT, AV, uh, commercial aviation, you know, uh, weapon systems, healthcare. Um, it's all a process that you have to manage continuously. Excellent. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I'll, yeah. I'll just kind of close and then let Billy have his thoughts too on this. But um, really, I think the, the struggle is going to be, especially from uh, the installation, the integrator the, uh, aspect is um, getting folks to realize the implications of a cyber attack is not just a computer-related uh, exploit. It actually has impact to operations, potential public safety issues. Um, and so I think what we see in other industries is it's difficult to get traction with the, your standard IT department. Um, they're focused on the IT security. 
the operational technology side, the OT side, um, don't see cybersecurity as a concern. And so you've got to start finding ways to where you can uh, make it uh, to where the implications are understood by the management level, the C-suite, or at least the, the senior uh, leadership of the organization. Otherwise, they're, the, they're not going to put funding into it. They're not going to, um, they're going to go lowest bidder, if you will, and the requirements won't be there. Uh, so that becomes the challenge then, and it's a it's a tough struggle. A lot of times it takes something happening, unfortunately, before folks are going to actually put money into uh, solutions because we're just a reactive society by nature. And so that's kind of your uphill battle. But the takeaways I would say for your listeners, if they're the integrators, the installers, is uh, primarily is the evaluate the criticality of the system. So you kind of prioritization from there. Make sure your configurations. Um, you have secure configuration uh, for, for the devices themselves and then the network segmentation as well so that if somebody does get access to one, can you limit how they pivot? And so those would be kind of some of the primary takeaways from a security posture perspective that you can do now. Um, but I do appreciate, Pat, you at least bringing us on. And I think this is a very important topic and I'm glad you're shining light on it into a, a, an industry that is kind of shied away from it to this point. But I think it's something that needs to definitely be taken a little bit further into account. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I, I really appreciate your time. Yep, absolutely. Billy, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, if I could leave your listeners with one kind of message, I think it would be uh, right now it's, it's just too easy, right? So uh, we've looked at audio visual systems before, um, everything from, you know, conference room schedulers on the wall all the way to giant projections that are you know, being broadcast on the sides of, of stadiums. Um, and right now, it's, it's just too easy, right? So um, when people start to focus their attention on this, hackers start to focus their attention on this, they're going to find that it's probably a lot easier than they first anticipated once they start to understand some of these systems. And so um, I think there's a little bit that we can all do from a manufacturer side, from an integrator side, and from an end user side that can make that better, right? So um, like, for example, you know, hacking an iPhone is actually pretty difficult, uh, over the network. It's actually really difficult. And so if we can at least achieve that level of security, I think that would be a good thing. Excellent. If uh, anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Sure. They can uh, They can reach out to us on our email. It's uh, contact at qedsecure.com. Super. Jonathan, Billy, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, Join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either-or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, before I took the learnavprogramming.com courses... I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? 
when it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset, uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the, the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.